Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today, my guest is someone I've been a fan of for pretty much my whole life. Darren Pfeiffer, host of The Dangerous Darren Show, formerly of Goldfinger. We're going to talk about everything from drum technique and influences to recording and touring with Goldfinger to Cannibal Corpse and Sum 41, Tony Hawk and Wayne Gretzky, you name it. This is Dangerous Darren Pfeiffer. Hello. Hey, man. How are you doing? We did it. We made it. If you're ready to party, I'm ready to party. All right. Sounds we good. Should, we should party. Yeah. Well, uh, again, my name's Sam. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. If fans of mine aren't familiar, you are, of course, the host of the Dangerous Darren Show with TS. I had some amazing guests on that show. I think probably the only punk podcast to have like all three epitaph doctors <laughs> actually that's a good point i have had all three epitaph doctors that's weird put up a little ad there you got your phds of punk phds of punk yeah i actually mentioned that with milo about getting together with the, with those two guys he's like no we never really talked about it but we should yeah he's like i don't i don't think i want to write a song about science <laughs> so let's do let's do a band like i'll play drums obviously dexter can play guitar and once someone's got to play bass but boom we're a band yeah, that's pretty great. Yeah. Well, I think that you are one of the drummers that you can kind of pick out from a mile away. Almost like Trey Cool has that sort of eighth note feel that's driving the song forward. But like you have very singable fills, very musical parts that are adding little licks in the same way that a lead guitar player would. You know, like the opening to Superman. Everybody knows that. Where does that come from for you? Were you influenced by people who had like a real signature style or is it just a, an amalgam of random influences? Two part answer for this, I suppose. One of it comes from the love and admiration I had and the influence of Stuart Copeland from the police, mm. who also has a very, very distinctive signature sound, signature feel and approach to his fills, which are also very musical. Yeah. And I talked to Stuart about that on my podcast. Like I was trying to break down certain songs with him about come, you come in on the E and uh, here, on this chorus, and then you come in on the one, and the third one, he's like, you need to stop me right away. He's like, you know, I got to stop you. He's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I, la I, I, I laughed, and he laughed, and I said, so what do you mean? He goes, dude, when I recorded those songs, like I, I just learned it literally like an hour ago. Oh, my God. We, we would learn, Sting would come in, and we'd learn a song, and we'd re rehearse it once and twice sting would get really pissed off three times sting would get like super pissed <laughs> but like sometimes andy needed more time and i needed more time so sting would go fine let's do it again and the drum fills that i came up with were on the spot on the fly sometimes in the in the studio while i was recording playing it for like the second time or third time uh, or sometimes the fourth time and i just just i would just play it and the producer looked at me and thumbs up everything's fine let's move on so i didn't like think it out like neil pierce thinks out his fills and maps out his fills and, yeah and with superman and mabel and nothing to prove another, another drum intros that i played with goldfinger it wasn't really calculated it just kind of i came up with them on the spot because the producer or the band was like hey we should do a drum intro for mabel we shouldn't just come in on the one I'm yeah like, all right yeah yeah let's do a drum intro and i and, and i was coming up with really complicated fills for that one i'm glad you mentioned nothing to prove because that one is insane <laughs> it's, just, it's just bottom triplets that's all it is <laughs> but at that tempo yeah 
Yeah, true. So I, I play really complicated intro intros for me, but it's like some just drum fills and, and triplets and other kind of stuff. And the band was like, no, nah, it's got to be really dumb. It's got to be dumb, super dumb. <laughs> so I, I, did, I, I did a dumb one. They're like, no, dumber. And I did another one, a little bit complicated with like a, like a some, like ghosts on the snare. And they're like, no, it's too Stuart Copeland. Dumber. <laughs> yeah. So then I went, block them, block them, put them, block them. And they're like, love it. And I'm like, that is the dumbest dumb fill of all time. And the producer's like, it's pretty rad. And you're like, and I'll be playing this for the rest of my life. Thanks. And I, I, put, I put my head in my hands and I, in the studio, and I'm like, I'm gonna have to live with that. Yeah, I'm gonna have to live with that <laughs> forever. With um, with nothing to prove. I wanted it really simple, like just a snare roll, da, 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 you know, something really simple. They're like, oh, it's got to be gnarly. Yeah. I'm like, really? Like the song is kind of gnarly. Like, let's just let's the intro ease into the gnarliness. So, like, no, it's got to be gnarly from the beginning. That's when I came up with the bottom triplet intro, and off we went. But as far as having singable parts, I was trained from Stuart to yeah. come up with parts, whether I thought it out ahead of time in the studio or pre-production. Because back then, even in the early to mid nineties, you did pre-production, you got into a studio and you with a producer or, or, or a rehearsal space and you ran the songs 10 times. Yeah. Everybody was like micro analyzing their parts. Is that the right bass note? Is that the right fill? Is that the right feel? Should we, add another kick drum should we subtract the kick drum is that is that pre-course the third time around even needed yeah uh, you know like we would just rip the songs apart so you went to the studio and you you knew what you were doing before you did it but yeah Stuart subconsciously was always on my mind with especially some of the ska and reggae stuff i did with goldfinger he was always in the back of my mind when it came to the groove like as far as getting into a pocket and staying into a pocket that's all john bottom really you listen to John Lennon Levy Breaks. He just sits in that pocket and plays that song so well, and he doesn't deviate from that groove too too much, and it, you just forget about the groove. Yeah, and that's whenever there was parts in Goldfinger songs where I had to lay down a groove for a good long while, whether it was super fast or, or mid tempo or slow, I was always channeling or trying to channel Jump Bottom. I mean, you elevate the songs in a way that's just uh, I don't know. I mean, Goldfinger is one of those bands that really kind of hit me at the right time when I was really young and really did change my life, you know, where I'm scrawling your logo on my math books and shit back <laughs> in middle school, you know? Wow. And cool. we're talking about influences. Recently you posted that you were in Zero Tolerance, a hardcore band from Buffalo. Right. And then I also think about, like, City with Two Faces, The End of the Day, SMP, like, you actually do have hardcore songs, you know? <laughs> it's funny you mention that, because another influence of mine that I didn't really channel too, too much, but this guy could do it all, was Topper Hedden from The Clash. Oh, okay. Topper could do it all. I mean, if you listen to The Clash, and I, I listened to The Clash growing up before I read interviews and, and learned more about Topper as, as a man and Joe Strummer as a songwriter and Nick and, and Paul, Topper could play reggae. Topper could play ska. Topper could play punk. Topper could play fucking hip hop. He, he could do it all. And there was an interview with Joe Strummer about Topper. And he mentioned how he couldn't throw Topper. He couldn't confuse him. He couldn't. Whatever he had for a song, Topper had an answer yeah. as far as a fill or a beat or a rhythm or a groove. He just couldn't buck him. He's like, hey, I got this song. Check it out. He's like, oh, yeah, I got something for that. And, he, <laughs> and he'd play it. That's why growing up, I was into hardcore like the Zero Tolerance stuff, the, the New York City stuff, that's what I grew up on. The Gorilla Biscuits, Youth of Today, Chrome yeah. Eggs, Warzone, Agnostic Front, Sick of It All, all that stuff was right up my alley. I yeah. loved it. 
but I also love the traditional Ramones, Dead Kennedys, Clash, et cetera, et cetera, Misfits. But I also, at the same time, I, I loved Joy Division, and I loved The Smiths and Depeche Mode, and I liked a lot of jazz. My mom listened to jazz. My mom listened to Elvis. My grandparents listened to classical music. I loved country music, old country, like Loretta Lynn and Dolly Parton and, and Johnny Cash. I loved reggae. I loved ska, the early Desmond Decker stuff, and then the police drew on that, and then Madness came about, and then eventually the Bostones and specials. And So I, lo- I loved it all. So when I met John Feldman, he would play me a demo of something. It'd be like middle of the road, Husker Du, pop punk, pop punk. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I got that. I like Husker Du. And then he'd play me something. He's like, oh, do you like Scott? I'm like, yeah, the Boston's uh, specials. I love Scott. And he goes, oh, you do? And I go, yeah, of course. He's like, oh, cool. Check out, I, I got this Scott song. Oh, it's got a Scott intro. You in your bedroom. Then we'll get into like the pop punk stuff. Cool. Yeah. So I, I do all the side stick stuff, the four on the floor, the tasty hi-hat and splash work was all stuff I lifted from Stuart. All the Scott feels I've lifted from the specials. And then the punk stuff was all stuff I, I knew from New York City hardcore and then the traditional punk stuff that I was into at the time. And I could play metal. I was in a metal band before Zero Tolerance. I was in a death metal band. Oh, really? Called Beyond Death with feverish double bass. That The band broke up and reformed a month later as Cannibal Corpse. Oh, my God. Wow. And then I moved to Los Angeles, and then they did what they did. But I was really into the death metal stuff and the speed and the double bass. Well, that explains your chops. It's a funny story, like, really quick. When I met John Feldman, you know, me and John don't get along right now. We don't talk. We're not friends. But I'll never throw the man under the bus for his songwriting. He's sure. brilliant. He is absolutely brilliant as a songwriter. And we've had arguments about other things along the way, but we've never, ever fought over his ability to produce or his ability to write. He's absolutely brilliant. So when I first met John... I worked at Starbucks, and he, I worked with his best friend, this surfer dude, California surfer dude with dreadlocks named Damien. And me and Damien became friends because he was into like Nirvana and Soundgarden and Husker Du and Punk, and so we became friends. And he's like, "Oh, you gotta meet my friend John. He was in this band called Electric Love Hogs, and they just broke up uh, a little while ago. And now he's trying to start a new band. He's doing. He'll be coming in here all the time to get free coffee and free treats. Uh, you'll meet him." I'm like, oh, sounds like a nice guy. He came in and he, and he was like, hey, Damon, told me you play drums. I said, yeah, I, I play drums. And this is 1993. Okay. And he goes, what do you think of Dave Grohl? What do you think of Nirvana? Mm-hmm. I go, I love Nirvana. I've loved Nirvana for years. Yeah. He's, Dave Grohl's awesome. He's like, Dave Grohl's the best rock drummer right now on the planet. Looked at me like, as a matter of fact, he's the best rock and roll drummer right now in the world. <laughs> yeah. A challenge. And I go, I don't know if he's the best rock drummer in the world right now. He's like, well, you, you're better than Dave Grohl? And I go, technically, yeah, I'm probably better than Dave Grohl. <laughs> he was offended. He was so offended at me, man. Like, he was like, oh, fuck you. And I was t- I was taken back, like, well, wait, what did I do to offend? What? He goes, you're not better than Dave Grohl. You probably fucking suck. <laughs> and I was dumbfounded. I'm like, I don't know what to say. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I don't, but fuck you. You know, he's like, oh, whatever, you fucking suck. Fuck you. Fuck this guy. He's left. He came in every now and again to get free coffee from Damien. He'd look at me and he'd go, hey, Darren, uh, John. Like, really, like, matter of fact. Yeah. Then he came up to me one more time and he goes, oh, so you like metal, right? I go, I love metal. He had no idea my background. Yeah. Because you like metal, right? I go, yeah, I love metal. He goes, what do you think of Pantera? Again, it's 92, 93. Pantera are hot shit. Yeah. I go, I love Pantera. He goes, let me guess, you can play all that Vinnie Paul double bass stuff, right? <laughs> and, of course, I can. I said, yeah, yeah, I can. Actually, it's pretty easy. He goes, oh, you must be the best drummer in Los Angeles. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I was like, 
you're such an asshole. Why are you such an asshole to me? And I'm like, oh my God. I was like, David, your friend is such a dick. <laughs> There's another drummer that worked there named Pete. And Pete was a hippy-dippy drummer. He liked fish. Grateful yeah. Dead. You know. So we're working one day, and he gives me a cassette tape. And he goes, your friend John Feldman came in and gave me this cassette tape of some songs. And I go, he's not my friend. He's Damien's friend. <laughs> like, I don't like that guy. Play not my jam. I think it's more yours. I took it home. It, it, the cassette had his name on it and his phone number. Wow. John and his phone number. I took it home, popped it in. Again, 93 cassettes were, you know, a big deal. Yeah. Popped it in and was like, oh, my God. I think uh, Miles Away was on it. Uh, anxiety, like what became anxiety, was on it. Are these just like acoustic uh, versions, or what? Are, I mean, do they have these are no? These are demo versions, just really rough demo versions. But actually, rough to John Feldman was pretty damn good. Yeah, because even back then in '93, he had audio chops. He knew what he was doing. Yeah, they were good. So I was blown away, and it was like three other songs that never saw the light of day, but they were still really good. And I'm like, fuck, this is absolutely incredible. I call John on the telephone. I told him who I was, and I'll never forget this as long as I live, man. I go, hey, John, it's Darren Pfeiffer. And he goes, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> what do you What do you want? <laughs> I, I ignored it. I was like, uh, I got your demo tape from Pete, and I listened to it. And he goes, oh, you did? Oh, what do you think? Yeah, now I he's interested. Say, I didn't say anything like, why didn't you give it to me? I was, I was just like, I listened to it. And he goes, what do you think? And I go, I'm fully... And completely and utterly blown away. Blown away. Yeah. He's like, really? And I go, yeah, no, this shit's fucking really, really good. Right in my alleyway. Right in my wheelhouse. He goes, oh, then he turned into my best friend. Literally overnight. Wow. Me and John were inseparable. He was like, we got a jam. He's like, we got a jam. And I was jamming with a guy named Jason Cropper, who used to be the guitar player Weezer. Right before the Blue Record came out, they kicked him out. Oh. And I was playing in, a, in an incarnation of his and with his wife who played bass but couldn't really play bass she had no idea what she was doing and I was miserable <laughs> songs were good but like we just had a hard time getting her up to speed so I went to Jason and I said like I gotta do this thing like, it's really what I need to do and he goes dude do it you got my blessing I'll find a drummer don't worry about it nice so I was jamming with just John Feldman and Simon Williams in a room downtown on someone else's drum kit yeah and after like two rehearsals, they were begging me to be in this band. Literally, like, you have to be in this band. You were meant to be in this band. <laughs> I go, does it even have a name? They're like, no, but you need to be in this band. Like, you're right what we need. Like, I've never seen a drummer like you. He was just so blown away that I was playing like the Scott stuff and the punk stuff and the reggae stuff and, and had fills. And I, I actually learned the songs. Yeah. And he goes, we've had drummers come in here, Darren, and they said they learned the songs. I gave them the cassette. They, they would show up and they'd do these like, James Addiction tribal beats <laughs> over a song like Miles Away. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, are you fucking kidding me? So you came in and learned it, and not only did you learn the song, you, like, added fills. Yeah. Like, good, really good fills. So then me and John became inseparable. But the same way, like, when me and John started to get together and demo songs for the for what eventually would become our first record, he would say, hey, do you like do you like this? Check this out. He'd play for me, and I'd, I would go, oh, yeah, I got a beat for that. <laughs> yeah. What about what about this? Let's go back to ska for for answers, or let's go to reggae for a king for a day, or let's do this, let's do that. I always like, yeah, I got something for that. 
he couldn't buck me. He couldn't get me to go, I don't know what to do here. Like, I would just draw on my vast influences that I mentioned earlier to play a groove or play a fill or play something that he that matched the song. And then we just demoed them one by one, bang, 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 until we had this collection of songs that we put on a, on a demo called Richter, which is out there. You can get it. It's hard to find, but you can find it. And it eventually landed in the hands of... Patrick McDowell, who was the A&R guy for Mojo, same label that signed Cherry Pop and Daddy's and Go Big Fish. Yeah. We were technically signed to Universal Records because that was our distribution company. So they, we got we had the muscle of Universal, and then the rest, as they say, is history. So that's yeah. kind of how the blueprint of how it all started. And I'm glad you shout out the Daddies there from my hometown here in Eugene. Oh yeah, I love those guys. Yeah, we played a few shows with them. It, it, it wasn't a good mix. They were like dance hall kind of big band swing and we loved it but it was hard to put us together yeah but they were the nicest guys super sweet well i'm glad that you mentioned the array of influences and almost the random quality of john going okay you like this punk song do you like this scott song do you like this hardcore song like was there a conversation about okay we have all these different type of songs but do they go together I mean, you're pigeonholed as a ska band because you sometimes do that, so I guess that makes you a ska band. No, I disagree. I, I mean, we people that pigeonhole us as a ska band, I would correct it. Like, yeah. I, right away, I'm like, oh, yeah, we're, we're here with a ska band Goldfinger. I'm like, no, we're not ska because we don't wear suits and have a horn section and drive <laughs> scooters. You know, that's the Bosco. That's yeah. Real Big Fish. I go, we play ska about as much as Rancid do. Or as about as much as No Effects does. Yeah. Or you know about or as much as The Clash. Yeah. Had ska feels here and there. Well, then you guys are a punk band. No, not really, because we have uh, ska songs and reggae songs and middle of the road, uh, Huskadoo style stuff. Like you know, we're not, we don't have Mohawks. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're not oi oi oi. Like we're not a punk band. But they're like, well, what are you? Like we get to arguments at radio stations with people all the time. Well, what are you guys? Like, we're a band. We're a rock band. Yeah. We play rock and what, what do you what do you call The Clash? older punk well they have punk imagery but are they really punk listen to the clash listen to santanista and tell me if that's a punk record yeah like they're a band they're a rock band so over the years i'm like we're a rock band goldfinger or we're a rock band that was influenced by punk we're a rock band that was heavily influenced by ska and reggae and rock and metal there's some metal moments in goldfinger recordings like here and there sprinkled about Definitely. like you mentioned smp with the hardcore stuff yeah. so it's really a, a a potpourri of all kinds of styles you really can't put your finger on what goldfinger were and i'm personally super grateful that i came of age at that time i feel like coming up in the mid 90s and that's like when i bought my first guitar and started my first band and it's such an amazing time that's unique because all these great bands are blending styles that don't necessarily go together in such a way that it's very much like a time capsule, whether that's Goldfinger or whether that's Beastie Boys playing punk and jazz songs in their rap show. If that's my introduction to music, it doesn't put you in a box in the way that like some of the other stuff you were talking about, like, oh, so you're a punk band. Oh, so you play this beat all the time. You know, yeah. I mean, if you listen to nothing but Pennywise and GBH and No Effects, and you write songs in that ilk, you're a punk guy. Yeah. Or if you listen to you know Mighty Mighty Boss Sounds and Mustard Plug and Real Big Fish, you're you're a sky guy, and that's fine. Do whatever you want. 
but with Goldfinger, you, you mentioned, was it something we thought about putting these different styles together? It was, is it something that we, we planned on or talked about? No, it was not talked about. Um, it was just, it, it was kind of an unspoken thing. Like it, it just works. Yeah. Ska and punk. We weren't the first to put it together. For sure. It, it, we, we, it worked and our producer liked it. Universal Records heard it and thought the record was good. Like, well, this is going to be easy to sell to a lot of different radio formats. You got the rock format. There's a lot of punk formats. There's even a few middle of the road formats that we could go after. Yeah. So they liked it. They liked that we were had we had punk imagery, so to speak. We didn't have mohawks, but like we we did we did it from time to time have mohawks or colored <laughs> hair. But we we had horn sections when we could. You know, if we played with the daddies or we played with Real Big Fish, we'd ask them to jump in and on Superman and on Answers and some other song pictures. And they would, yeah, sure, we, they'd learn it and jump in, and it was great. But, um, yeah, it wasn't really talked about. It just was, it, it worked. And I'm lucky that it did because that record is something I'm very proud of. Yeah. I knew it would work because I was a fan of The Clash. And The Clash mixed styles way before we did. Yeah. Like there are a lot of bands that Husker Du did that. There's a lot of bands that, that mixed styles way before Goldfinger came along, or way before Green Day came along. So not that we're nothing special, just it's been done and the formula was accepted. Yeah, we didn't talk about it. Well, you mentioned having guest musicians on the records. Was that ever something that was debated? Like, well can we pull this off live? Are you sure you want to do it? Or was it just like, this is what the song needs, we'll figure it out later? Yeah, more of the latter. It was like, this is what the song needs. Yeah. So Scott's song needs a horn. Yeah. What would Superman be without horns? <laughs> I yeah. mean, you had to have them in there. An organ, like, well, we'll figure that out, you know, for a king for a day. We don't have an organ. We can do organ-style stuff on guitar. Like, if you can do the roots, the notes, you can. we can work our way around it. We don't have to bring a horn, an organ guy with us on, on tour. Yeah. No one complained. Goldfinger fan, no one complained. Like, oh, I didn't hear the organ on King for a Day. <laughs> we didn't hear that. <laughs> yeah. You guys were too much energy for them to notice, I think. Yeah, they were just like, they were just so stoked to hear the song, hear the melodies, and sing along. And we knew we could pull it off. We knew we could pull all these songs off live from a bass, drum, guitar perspective. Yeah. And then John, being the great singer he was, and the great front man he was, we were, you know, we were off to the races. We, we could play literally anything off those records, and the fans would love it. Well, and you guys had some pretty wild shows. I mean, I uh, count one of my favorite high school show experiences, you know, coming up as the whole mob of the crowd on stage with you guys singing Mabel like you did every night. I mean, <laughs> you guys had would do like the the butt Twinkie gag. And yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously there was the infamous Conan O'Brien appearance. That made the rounds recently because he retired. So, oh, yeah, I mean. That made the rounds like, oh, you remember when Darren did this? <laughs> and a lot of people on Twitter and Instagram and whatnot were like, I never saw this. How come I never saw this? <laughs> and I had to relive it all over again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you guys even won, or not won, but you guys were uh, featured in the, the Guinness Book for that record when you toured more than anyone had ever toured in a single year. What was it, like 380 shows or something? I think it was 385 Jesus. or 383 or something like that in 365 calendar days. That's fucking insane, man. I mean... Well, we did... Uh, to be fair, we doubled up. We tripled up a couple times. We would do a show in the morning 
in Chicago at 101. And this happened a few times at radio stations, the big cities, New York, yeah. Chicago. We did London, we did Tokyo. We're like We would do a morning show and play like almost a full set for the station. Sometimes full out, rocking out, sometimes semi-acoustic. So I'd have, I'd have a little snare drum or something. And then we do a matinee at like one or two for the kids because they couldn't get in to the, the regular show. So we do a matinee. The kids would come. There's no booze. And then we do a full set there. And then another full set that night for the 21 and up crowd, the drinking crowd. Yeah. And boom, there it is, three shows in one day. And then when we did fly to, to Europe, we didn't have like bands do now. They get a day or even two to acclimate themselves to the time zone. We didn't. We landed in London and played that night. We landed in Tokyo. 18 hours in the air and <laughs> went right to the venue and set up. That's wild. We, we didn't go to the hotel and we didn't even check in. We are like, we landed late. We got to get to the venue. Oh yeah. Okay. Let's go. We're here. <laughs> so that wasn't a traditional day off. Any day off we had quote unquote, we were in the air. Yeah. Or a long bus drive to get to the next city. We did a lot of two show days, a lot of either morning show and night or a lot of matinee and night. There was a lot of two, a lot of threes, very few days off. Well, we didn't care. We were in our twenty. We were in our early twenties. We didn't give a shit. Our manager would call and go, "Hey, we got a two month tour with No Doubt. You want to do it? Yeah. Hey, you got a two month, three month tour with with Three Eleven. You want to do it? Yeah. No days off. Yeah, we don't care. Fuck it." Okay, I guess that that makes more sense because I was trying to think of in the context of like, you guys are signed. Is this some like overzealous booking agent, or are you guys booking this shit yourselves, or? okay, I see that Like we've set up these publicity events and you're also going to go out with so-and-so and then you're going to go out with somebody after that and then you're going to go out with somebody after that. Is that more how it, it was? Just, yeah. yeah, that's exactly how it happened. It just kept coming at us. And our manager's like, aren't you guys getting tired? you want to take like a few days off before that tour? No. As a matter of fact, we see the itinerary for this band that we're touring, Real Big Fish or whatever it is, and we see three days off. Can we do shows in those three days? Yeah. Really? You want to do shows? Yeah, we want to do shows every day. That's awesome, and, man. And then after, the, after that year or year and a half, we were just like, okay, now we got to start slowing down. Because now we're, we're actually starting to feel tired. Yeah. And we were starting to fight a little bit more. We were starting to get at each other's throats. And John had a bunch of songs. So it was like, we got to start slowly winding it down. Great record, great success, good first record. We got we, we to get into the studio and start demoing some songs for for what would become hangups. Yeah, and I was wondering about that too because if you guys are constantly on the road, does that mean you are jamming over new ideas at sound check or are you guys just like totally burned out, haven't spent any time actually creating? I mean, I was introduced to you guys on hangups technically. Like I heard the self-titled record at a friend's house. I went to the store to buy it and I saw this new one with the telephone cord noose on the front i'm like oh new release huh? i'll check this out and it's been one of my very favorite records probably top 10 for me ever since and yeah i mean i i can't even imagine if you guys are living out on the road like that does that help or hinder the writing process well it doesn't help we didn't have our studio john's home studio to record demos but john did bring a four track oh, or really? an eight track a Tascam cassette eight track with him on the road so he was able to, and he had an acoustic guitar, and he would lay down a few ideas. And I think he even had a drum machine, so he'd lay down a little rudimentary drum beat, real simple, something real stupid and dumb, just to lock at a rhythm. Yeah. And he'd play bass, and then he'd have that. And then if he did vocals, he did vocals. But we came home with a lot of material. Again, John being the prolific songwriter that he is. 
he can write a song in his sleep. Yeah, I mean, that's impressive. I mean, if you think about, like, self-titled Goldfinger celebrated its 25th anniversary this year, right? But it was only a year and a half. And I know some of these songs are from Richter and stuff. They've been around a little bit, but, like, it was only a year and a half from when that dropped to when Hang Ups was on the shelves. Now, we had a few leftover songs. I believe Superman was recorded towards the end of the first record. Really? John had the loose idea for it. And we tracked it separate from the hang-up sessions. And John's like, I gotta record the song, it's so good. And we recorded it and we're like, Oh, this is really good. Let's let's hold on to it, obviously, for our next record. Yeah. And then and then yeah, it turned out to be, you know, a huge song for us for many reasons. But yeah, it all comes back to John Felden. Again, I, I got a lot of problems with the guy, but he fuck, he can write a song. Yeah. And uh, whenever he did, I was usually the first to hear it. John I John, I got some ideas. Wanna hear them? Yeah. I'd listen and I'd be like, that's fucking a hit. That's going to make the record. That's going to make the record. I love that. Let's record. I can't wait to get to the studio. I got ideas flowing for days. Oh, I figured you would. Like, sorry about that drum beat. You can change it. I go, no, I'm going to change it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, then we, and, and then we get into the rehearsal space and Simon and, and Charlie would know the song a little bit. I would know it start to finish because John would play it for me first and give me the tapes. And I'd go home and learn it come up with some ideas so by the time we got to the rehearsal there was already a good base of the song leading up to the pre-production and recording of the record yeah but it happened it happened fast we didn't take a lot of time off it wasn't like oh we're home from tour let's take a month off it was we're home for a week we're getting antsy <laughs> let's let's start recording these songs yeah now as john became more of a hands-on producer and more of an established producer within the industry. Did that change your guys' creative process at all? No, not really. I mean, John's always been the songwriter. He, he was, and he is. Back then, the first record, Hang Ups, and then we had a cover record in between there called Darren's Coconut Ass. Yes, one of my favorite uh, titles ever. <laughs> good, a good little, like, uh, holdovers to keep people's appetite wet leading up to, what was, um, what was the third Stomping record? Stomping Ground. Stomping Ground? Yeah. So... As John got more and more involved with engineering, and this is analog engineering back then, and then he got into Pro Tools, started to learn about Pro Tools. And we did a cover at that time of More Today Than Yesterday for a movie, what was it called? Waterboy. And we worked with Tim Palmer, the great English producer who worked with Ozzy and the Cult and U2, David Bowie. Like we, we, we couldn't believe we were getting Tim Palmer to do this song with us. Yeah. And we got along with him so well. We loved him so much. And John, and, and he was already Pro Tools master, Tim, even though Pro Tools was still in its infancy. Yeah. It was still kind of what it is today, digital recording with digital plugins. And, you know, you can fly in and you can do a peripheral without board and you, know, you can marry the two analog and digital inside Pro Tools with peripherals. And John was like, oh, you got to show me how to do I'm already up to speed a little bit, but like you are a Jedi master. Can I be involved in in the production of this record. Yeah. You know, John was involved in hangups. John was involved with the first record. Sure. But we had Jay Rifkin who was, um, the head of Mojo records. Mm -hmm. He was Hans Zimmer's engineer. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. And so John, John soaked up as much as he could from an analog two inch tape point of view. But when we started moving towards digital, John and Tim Palmer were inseparable. Really? Then our sound kind of, morphed into what Mojo wanted us to sound like to what John Feldman wanted us to sound like. Yeah. And I didn't care. 
I trusted John implicitly as far as his ability to mix his ear and uh, what direction we were going to go in. It caused a little bit of problems, to be honest with you, with some of the guys in the band. Really? I mean, how many people were in the band? There's Simon, there's Charlie, there was eventually moved into Kelly. Uh, Brian Arthur, and, and then, and then uh, Phil, and, and my career. But early on, there were some rubs in direction we were going into sonically and songwriting-wise. Really? To be, yeah, it, it, it's documented, it's out there. You know, if you, there was some battles, like, I don't like that song, That's this song is stupid, these lyrics are dumb. <laughs> and I, I, I was always like, well, I like it. And then they were like, you like anything he does. I'm like, well, they're actually good songs. Like, yeah. You know, and they're like, well, I don't like this verse. I don't like this uh, pre-chorus. I don't like this bridge. Like, And I was always like, okay, do you have an alternative? Yeah, yeah. What's the are better you, idea are you, are then? Are you a songwriter? Because John is. And <laughs> he's coming to us with like all these songs, and they're really good. And why don't we just trust the process? Yeah. We've had two great records. You know, and then after Stomping Ground, you know, three great records. Why don't we just trust the process? But it got more and more combative, and then Charlie eventually left the band. I mean, um, I absolutely love Stomping Ground. I feel like that became kind of the blueprint for future Goldfinger. I mean, that's where you can hear more, I think, John as a producer coming in and what would become the Goldfinger signature from there on in. Yeah, I would agree with that. When you were in Pick It Up, the documentary, shout out to my friend Taylor Morden, but there was a lot of talk in that film from all the bands involved in that scene. They were like, oh yeah, everything started dying out by 99. And I was like, what? I mean, I, I was just a fan on the outside, but like I was there too. And all I remember are these amazing records that were coming out after that. Like to me, that's like my heyday that's my golden age you know that was my stomping ground was you know the late 90s early 2000s and i was i was so surprised to hear all these ska bands saying that since you guys were kind of an outlier did you experience that because i mean i felt like you guys were only getting better yeah i don't really know how to answer that i mean i watched the documentary too and i heard these guys say that but i don't necessarily agree with it yeah maybe you thought it was dying that's your opinion it wasn't there were still ska bands doing ska records. There were still punk bands doing punk records. And there was still all the in-betweens doing yeah. the in-between stuff. You just had to dig a little deeper. You had to stay involved in the scene, in music in general. You had to, like, go to the record stores. Or when things got, the internet started to get big, you had to, like, go online and talk to people in chat rooms. Hey, what are you listening to? What, what should I check out? I'm hoping to check out a new record this week. What's, what do you got for me? Well, I think people just got lazy. Yeah, and this is also for musicians that they got older and they got lazy. You know, they liked what they liked, and they didn't want to expand, or they stopped growing musically as far as exploring new music. And then they were like, "Okay, everything's dead." That's a huge thing for musicians. As people become more active as creators, they are kind of their own business. They gotta tour this shit and sell it, and you know, become their own labels and whatever. That they kind of stop taking in music as a fan and then it does kind of create this weird gap like oh it's over that time has passed you know yeah yeah i would agree with that as well if you love music and you're a fan music shouldn't be just a phase that you label oh you know from 1995 to 1999 i loved it yeah it's dead no it's not dead your love just died a little bit yeah that's all 
That's all it is. It's still there. There's still bands releasing music today. There's ska bands today releasing music. There's punk bands right now that are putting out stuff that is amazing. Yeah. Like I love I love that Get Dead. I love the Bomb Pops. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff. Red Religion are still putting out records. You no know, effects are still putting out records. Pennywise put out some records the last couple of years. So there's still stuff going out there. You just got to listen to it. Yeah. You know, and go to the festivals. Go to Punk Rock Bowling. You know, go on the Flogging Molly Cruise. Like check out the what these bands are pushing and you'll fall back in love with music again. Yeah, definitely. And keeping tabs on bands, as you mentioned, like chat rooms and shit was a little harder back then on the internet. But I remember a particular song that you guys did, speaking of changing dynamics in the band, and you did this massive collab right after 9-11 on this kind of digital single called The Innocent. Mm-hmm. What do you remember about that song? Because, I mean, as a young kid in that time where no one knows what the fuck is going on in the world, that really resonated with me. Yeah, we were friends with Good Charlotte. John was with the Madden Brothers. And we were friends with the uh, Mest, obviously, from John producing them and bring, bringing them up through the ranks. Yeah. Uh, it just really kind of happened organically. John wrote a song, sent it out to these guys, said, what do you think of this? And of course the band's like, this sounds great. I'm in, let's do it. And then, and because everyone was in LA, it all, it happened pretty quick. Did you guys tour a lot with uh, John's other bands? Oh, constantly, yeah. We were on tour with Real Big Fish all the time. Yeah. That, that wasn't a John band, even though John does claim he signed Real Big Fish. <laughs> yeah. He did not. He absolutely did not sign Real Big Fish. It was Patrick McDowell and Mojo Records that signed <laughs> Real Big Fish. John might've been like, I love this band. Oh my God, they're amazing. I love them. But we all were saying that. We're, we're all were saying, you guys should sign Rubik Fish. Yeah. Holy fuck, they're amazing. They're going to blow up. Trust me. John Philbin was not the A&R guy for Mojo Records <laughs> at that time. Fair. But anyway, anyway I, I digress. We brought Mest with us a lot. We brought Show Off with us wherever we went. And eventually we brought The Used with us. Those are the three big ones that were with us all the time. Yeah. I, I remember when the first Used record came out, we were at like a Sam Goody, me and my bandmates, just see this weird looking cover and like, oh, what's this? Flip the back cover, produced by John Feldman. Okay, sure. Like we didn't know he was doing that at that point, you know? And I, I noticed right away with a lot of those records, you hear that Goldfinger tight snare crack on all those early records that he produced. And I was like, wait a second. So is that Darren's influence or is that John's influence? Like, who's the one who had the uber tight piccolo snare thing? Well, I think Brandon was a fan of mine because we became friends before they got signed and before John did the record and they would come to our shows and me and Brandon would talk about drums forever. Oh, okay. And I was a fan. I mean, my cracky snare sound, I was a fan of Stuart Copeland's snare sound. I was a fan of 311. Yeah. I wanted that snare to be crack, crack, almost marching. Yeah. So I don't know if I ever talked to Brandon about why he did it that way or if John wanted it because he was so used to my snare sound. Yeah. But yeah, I remember hearing that record and hearing John's influences for sure. Not only from a songwriting point of view, which John did help write, co-write a lot of those songs on that record yeah. and subsequent used records, but also the sonically. That snare sounds like Goldfinger or that bass tone sounds like Simon or Kelly. Yeah. Yeah, you, you heard it, but that's only to be expected. It's John's ear. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's what he's used to. Yeah, I just remember getting a kick out of that because I was 
probably early in high school at that point and just starting to kind of produce sessions for my own band at that time. Those are kind of the, the first, some of the first things I remember picking up on of like hearing a certain producer's stamp on something, you know. Here's a question for you. Did you ever get to meet Wayne Gretzky? Yes. You did? I did. I did. Yeah, I met him once before the song at an all-star game, an initial all-star game really quick, took his picture and uh, with him and got his autograph. And then I met him several times after the song was written and recorded and released. And the one time was at Gretzky's restaurant in Toronto, which is no longer, they, they got rid of it, sadly. Yeah. But I knew the GMs of the restaurant. They were friends of mine and they were fans of Goldfinger. And they're like, hey, Darren, we're shutting down, but we're going to have a reopening party. You want to come, you know, Gretzky's going to be there, his, his wife, his parents. It's an invite only. You want to come? I'm like, oh, my God. Wow. Can I bring, can I bring my wife? They're like, yeah, bring whoever you want. Yeah. So I brought my wife. We dressed up. His parents were there. It was invite only. All the food and booze were free. But I eventually slithered my way up to Wayne Gretzky because I had a couple of things I wanted him to sign. One of them was a ticket from the 1994 game with the Kings and the Canucks where he scored his 802nd goal passing Gordie Howe wow. to become the all-time goal-leading record. I was in the arena that night. Wow. I had a ticket. And I got up to him and I was like, hey, will you sign this? And he looked at the ticket stuff and he was, oh, wow, where'd you get this? Were you at the game? And I'm like, I was at the game. He's like, oh, wow, cool. Hold on to this. I go, oh, yeah, yeah, big time. And I said, hey, can you signing some autographs <laughs> for me? And I go, hey, you might know me as dangerous darren from goldfinger and he stopped <laughs> mid-autograph and he looked up at me and i'll never forget he looked at me with a little bit of concern in his eyes and i was i had my arm around my wife and i go i want you to meet my wife <laughs> vicky i want you to know he, he continued signing he started to smile and i go this is my wife i'm not a homosexual stalker i'm not really going to have sex with you ever i just thought it was a really funny song please tell me you you agree and he goes uh he goes, he's laughing. He goes, it's, it's kind of funny, but it's kind of weird to hear a <laughs> lyric and a song about someone wanting to have sex with me. I said, well, actually, Dwayne, I, I said, the only man I would have sex with. Like, I didn't say, I want to have sex with Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> I, said, I, I said, the only man I would have sex with. <laughs> Meaning, there was a gun to my head and God said, you could get to heaven, but who is it? I, I, I would pick you. And he's laughing. <laughs> he's like, okay, all right. You know, you're right. It's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. It's, it's weird, but it's funny. And I go, you know, it is super weird. And I'm sorry. Well, thank like, you, you know, Vicky, I don't, I don't for need the to save. Apologize. Enjoy the party, and I went on to enjoy the party. But yeah, he did. He's heard it for sure. Well, that's that's nice that she was there with you as the, <laughs> the proof that, yeah. that I'm not that I'm not a stalker. <laughs> oh man! Uh, another guy I have to bring up is, of course, Tony Hawk having a, I guess, kind of the effect that I've heard like Pennywise talk about when their music started going out on surf videos and skate videos and stuff. You know, I mean, the Tony Hawk games introduced a shitload of people to you guys via Superman. Oh, yeah. And I remember that very well, how that went down. We, we had a meeting, the label, and we were going over all the licensing that was coming our way. A lot of it was coming our way from movie soundtracks, video games, and TV shows. We all had like, oh, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Let's go. What, what's next? Oh, next on the, on the docket is we're doing this video game with Tony Hawk, and my eyes lit up because <laughs> I have a skateboarding past. Was, really? I was in a skateboarding team in Buffalo. We competed with other teams. We were sponsored. So skateboarding to me, is, it was, was, runs very, very deep. So I perked up. I'm like, what? They're like, oh, yeah, Tony Hawk, pro skater, video game with Activision. And they want to give us a little bit of money. Everyone okay with this? And I'm like, well, 
what song did they want to use? Like, did they go, well, Tony actually suggests, Tony picked Superman. <laughs> he wants Super, he likes that song. Wow. He wants Superman to be the main song in, in the whole video game. And there was a little bit of money attached to it. Yeah. And I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take half of that money and we're going to go back to Activision and Tony and ask for a point or half a point or whatever. Oh. And they're like, no, Darren, it's a lot of money. Let's just take the money. I'm like, I jumped on the table and I jumped up and down. I will quit this fucking band right now. <laughs> and the label and the manager were like, Darren, calm down. Fine. John looked at me like I was an alien and everyone's stunned. And I'm like, I like, this has to happen. Please just go back and ask if they say no, they say no, but can we ask? And they asked and they said, yes. Wow. So we got an override, a little bit of an override for sales. And when I had Tony Hawk on my podcast a couple of years ago, I said, do you remember that, Tony? And he goes, you know what, Darren? I do. And I remember you were the only band, you know, Pennywise and Circle Jerks and the Dead Kennedys. Everyone said, yes, you're, where did we sign? You were the only one that came back and asked for anything. Yeah. He goes, I, wanna, I know you're interviewing me, but I want to ask you, how did you know? I said, dude, there wasn't a skateboarding video game at that point I, that was any good. Yeah, I knew that Activision and you together in in a bed, it was going to be an incredible video game. I think there was only that one like arcade game. I remember they had like it was seven twenty. They had a Pennywise uh, song in it, like Peaceful Day or something. Yeah, that just uh, played on repeat. I think it was seven twenty or or Top Skater or oh Top Skater called, but it was fun. It was fun to play, but it it was limited moves. There's only like handful of moves you could do before you kind of mastered the game it was dumb yeah and you couldn't put tricks together you couldn't grind and an ollie off the grind into another grind you couldn't put combinations together yeah like you could in pro skater and, and i said dude i knew this i knew your video game was going to be huge and i figured why not ask and he goes no i approved it activision had no problem with it either that's smart man that's we, like we, some we jack still, still nicholson shit mailbox we call mailbox money every now and again yeah sales of that video game it was huge it exposed us to a whole new audience of people who liked punk but didn't even know Goldfinger existed, which is I find strange. People came up to us years later and said, I didn't even know you guys were a band yeah, at all until I heard 20 Arc Post Gator. And I go, oh, wow, thank you, thank you. Were you into punk? And they're like, oh, yeah, big time. And in my mind, I'm like, how could you be into punk <laughs> and not hear Goldfinger? I don't know. Maybe you guys weren't on that compilation that they bought. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know. Like, But it did propel us into another stratosphere of fandom with recognition from that video game and then i think we're on pro skater 4 as well had a song on that but um yeah it was monumental and tony remembers it was very fond memories were you guys involved in that there's a documentary coming out about that game right there is yeah yeah i heard something about it um pretty recently in fact i think that clip of him in pick it up where he just says you're welcome i'm pretty sure that was filmed during this other doc that they were making about pro skater yeah, I'm doing stuff with Tony right now. We're doing a 7-inch with Punk Rock Karaoke. Nice. The other band I play in. And he did a song with us, a video for a song called In the City about a jam. Yeah, I saw and that. It did really, really well. And so Cleopatra Records wants to put out a 7-inch. Cool. And the, and the B-side is going to be him doing the damn song, Neat, Neat, Neat. Nice. So we're mixing it right now. Well, I uh, want to cover a couple more things here before we wrap up. The last couple Goldfinger records released after you left, but one of the first songs that came out was Am I Deaf? I remember hearing Darren Pfeiffer licks that Travis Barker is playing, and I'm wondering, okay, so did they 
do a bunch of this stuff together and it and eventually this stuff got remade or were you out kind of before that even came to fruition i was out by the time that came to fruition okay. um, there was about six songs that i demoed before i left the band it was a disastrous recording session gotcha not because i couldn't play but because john was incorporating a new style of recording where he would record the intro and then he'd stop the tape and go okay fine let's move to the chorus i'm like we didn't even do the verse yet he's like let's just just, just try try it let's just try it yeah that's john's thing let's just try it so i okay i'd play along and i play into the verse uh sorry the chorus and then finish the first chorus he'd stop the tape and he's like okay let's go and do the bridge now like literally leapfrogging all over the the place and i'm (laughs) like i learned the song like why don't you just let me play it all the way through yeah so okay okay play it all the way through but don't have any symbols (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, you know, yeah. I, I wait. I was hitting cymbals before when you were doing like leapfrogging, but now I can't. He's like, well, you want to record it all the way through or not? Like, it was just really hard. <laughs> I don't remember if any of those songs were songs that eventually landed on the knife, but if there's Darren Pfeiffer drum isms on that record, I can only assume. Like, I didn't study the fills. I heard the record. I hadn't studied anything yet, but yeah. if they're in there, the only way I could really explain that was be. John just likes certain drum fills and styles that I worked with Goldfinger for years and years and years. Yeah. And they become kind of subconsciously ingrained into his drum lexicon. So when he talks to a drummer like Travis or whomever and says, Hey, I want this, 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 and stuff that I was doing in the early Goldfinger records that were ingrained into his production language. Yeah. That makes sense. Language. Hey, do that, do that, do that, or do that drum. Something I would do. That's the only thing I could really guess, and it would be, it would be a guess. For sure, yeah. I, I think it was on my mind because my, my last guest was Sean Sellers from Good Riddance, and we were talking about the different punk beats and kind of what he was saying, like drummers from Lagwagon, Pennywise, no effects, like they have little names for them and shit. And as I was listening back to this stuff before I talked to you, I was like, wait a second, you do a unique combination of those things sometimes where within one fast punk beat, you'll do the single pedal and then the double pedal alternating within the same phrase, you know? The no effects beat. Like that beat, you know, that's a name for that beat, you know, made famous by Eric and no effects, although RKL and Dave was doing that. But anyway, I, I love that beat. But I didn't want to play it every time that I John came up with a riff, a yeah. punk riff. So I, I would augment it. I go and or I go even longer phrase I would I phrase my kick patterns around that that drag that that two stroke drag. Yeah. But mix it up, and the band would be like, "Oh, Darren, you want you just play the no effects beat like here, or just go I'm like, "No, I'm never ever going to go like ever." That's just so stupid and boring and lame. Because also there's riffs. Like I want to play. I want to hit certain notes with the guitar riff. That yeah. accent. I want to accent those notes with the kick, or snare. Uh, so it's important to me to really listen to every riff and kind of formulate a, a drum beat, whether it's punk or not, around the riff. Yeah, I think like going home is a great example of that. Of you using that kind of alternating back and forth that is. It's very driving, it's very high energy, but it's also very unique just to that song. I think that one is a four bar phrase. So I go at the very end, the last bar. Yeah. 
So that, that's what makes it a four-bar complete phrase. Yeah, that song was fun. <laughs> I still like it. But hearing that song, I'm like, wow, I fucking, that's fast. Yeah, dude. I mean, I remember, because I saw you guys in 01 with Real Big Fish, and I picked up that live album, and I was like, ooh, what is this song? Because it wasn't on a record yet. Yeah. Again, it's the brilliance of John Feldman. Like, we're not the best of friends in, in the whole wide world. But man, oh, man, can that guy write a song? Yeah. He's a talented fella, and he deserves every inch of success that he has right now. Well, I hope that uh, someday I get to see you guys back on stage together. Who knows? I mean, I, I wouldn't be opposed to it. It's just there's still a lot of uh, hurt feelings in this band, a lot of grudges being held. And for me, I think it's really kind of stupid. Not, not because I'm dying to get back with Goldfinger. I'm not. I look at Goldfinger like a really great time in my life when I did some really great things and played some great records and great songs and some amazing tours and great shows and made some great friends that are still friends today. Yeah. But as far as the band, I mean, there's still a lot of animosity. There's still a lot of hurt amongst certain members in the band. And it's not something I think that's going to go away soon. I want it to. It'd be nice for us to have a cup of coffee and, and reminisce and forgive and forget. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, well, I'm not waiting for the phone to ring. For sure. I've cleared my side of the fence. I've called and made amends to, to the people I need to make amends to. And, yeah. and I feel good about it. As a matter of fact, we know I mentioned punk rocker karaoke earlier, and that is the funnest band I've ever played in in my entire life. <laughs> There's Greg Hudson from Bad Religion, Circle Jerks, and Randy from Pennywise, and Stan Lee from The Dickies. And we all get along famously. We never argue or fight over anything. And the reason being is we don't have a singer. Yeah. It sounds cliche. It's funny, but it's true. We don't have a singer coming in and fucking everything up. Well, I've loved watching your, your videos <laughs> since everything's been uh, virtual. It's cool you guys have been dropping videos or you've been playing with uh, Mikey and his uke on his channel. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I've really been getting a kick out of all these collabs you've been doing. Yeah, Mikey's a dear, dear, dear friend of mine from Toronto, and he, he started his ukulele thing, which is him and his uke. That's pretty much how he started it. He did 100 videos of just him and his uke every day during the pandemic. It was literally once a day. It was easy because it was just him and his ukulele to sing along to, whatever. But in his 100 video, I think he did Bro Him from Pennywise, and we had a, that's when the whole collaboration thing went from being just him and a ukulele to, like, guys and bands. Yeah. We got some great video people and some great audio engineering mixing people to come in on board. And then I've shared all my contacts with him and he called people and then, and then people saw it and like they wanted to get involved. So now, you know, we're getting people coming at us now and saying, Hey, how do I get involved in one of these Mikey and his Uke videos? How do I get involved in, in a punk rock karaoke video? It definitely was a, a blessing really quite frankly, both of those series because it kept all of us active and yeah. busy. Punk Rock Karaoke did a video once a week. Mikey was separated by two or three weeks in between his videos because it took a long time to get everyone squared together. Whereas Punk Rock Karaoke, we were all friends. We're all on the same page. So I, I would record my drums or any quarters bass, and then we'd eventually get Stan and Greg to do their parts. I would put it all together and release it every Friday or Saturday during the pandemic. And, of course, we slowed down significantly because Greg's doing circle jerks. Yeah, I'm actually drumming on a lot of people's records now and uh, keeping busy with my studio. And we're doing punk rock karaoke shows. Pennywise is firing back up again. So we're, we're slowing down, but we do have a few few videos getting ready to come out with some, some big names that I won't drop here. Of course, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, man, we're, it's, both of those series were a, a great blessing. I think if anyone hasn't seen these yet, look up Mikey and his uke panic song. 
by Green Day. That is a song that I've, I've covered yeah, in the past before. And it is rough for the rhythm section. But you and Kai Smith played it together. Man, that must have been a trip. Yeah, I, I didn't play it along with him. He did his, I did mine, and then the engineer kind of synced them together. Yeah. But yeah, that's pretty brutal. The rest of the song is pretty simple, but, but that intro... The two-minute intro. It's a work... It's a 16th note workout on your wrists and your arms on that floor toms. Yeah, and the bass, too. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. But the bass is a little easier because you're, you're butterflying it. You know, obviously, you can't downstroke that, so you're butterflying it. It's still a, a good workout on the bass, but the drums... Yeah, you can see it on yeah. Chris's face. <laughs> I had to get in shape for that. I had to, like... Really? Do it, like, two or three times on my rehearsal kit just to remember how to pace myself. Yeah, we did a, a, a Green Day cover set a few years back, and I remember the guitar player kept fucking that song up, and the drummer was like, Jesus Christ, man, I, I can't do this song a fourth time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Green Day songs aren't that complicated on guitar. I mean, come on, let's figure it out. It's yeah. Billy's an amazing songwriter, but the notes that he plays on Green Day songs are, are, aren't as complicated as Ramones. Yeah. Like, figure it out. <laughs> well, hey, uh, last thing before I let you go, I just wanted to touch on Sum 41. I was really excited when it was announced that you were playing with them, and I was like, oh, fuck, yeah, that is that makes me so happy. Like, you know, you hadn't been in Goldfinger for a minute, but you were joining one of my other favorite bands. You know, I saw you did some tours together and stuff and then wound up not being on, on the records and stuff. Uh, what, what was that relationship like? Was it just kind of, hey, we need somebody for a bit? Yeah, it was a fill-in thing. They already got Frank. They already had Frank lined up. And Frank and Derek were like the best of friends. And when Steve-O wasn't going to come back to the band, he just called Frank and said, hey, you want to be in Sum 41? And then Frank said, I, yeah, but I got, I'm got. i going to miss a couple shows. And then Derek called me and goes, you want to you jump in and play some shows? And I even said, well, can I be in the band? And he's yeah. like, well, we got Frank. We can't just kick Frank out of the band. I'm yeah. like, oh, I, I get it. Okay, I'm bummed, but I get it. I'm cool. Let's just play some shows. So I learned their set and jumped on and played some shows. My first show was in Bogota, Colombia, in front of 80,000 people. It was my first show. I loved hearing your, your interview with Derek where you guys talked about that. Yeah, you know, welcome to the band. I, I didn't even, <laughs> I had my in-ears, I was in my own inner world, and I was like, I couldn't really see past like 15,000 people. I knew there was more, but I, I couldn't see them. Yeah. I didn't care. I, was just, I, knew, I knew the songs. I knew the guys. They were my friends. It wasn't an awkward, weird situation. We had a blast. It would have been nice to have joined Sum 41, and who knows what the future holds. Yeah. But yeah, that was a lot of fun. I still talk to Cohen all the time, and I talk to Derek from time to time. We stay in touch. All right, man. Well, I, I sure appreciate your time. I look forward to uh, seeing what you're dropping next, and I uh, hope everyone checks out the Dangerous Darren show with TS. Yeah, check it out. It's on Adobe Radio, or really it's anywhere you can get podcasts. And uh, hit us up on Twitter and on Instagram at DangerousD underscore show for both Twitter and Instagram. And we'll follow you back. All right, that is our show. Huge thank you to Dangerous Darren for doing the show. Took a little persistence for the two of us to align our schedules, so it means a lot that we were able to do that. I've got tons of great guests lined up. I'm just scheduling it all now. So if you're enjoying the show, please take a screenshot, post it to your stories, help me get the word out. I'm going to leave you with a song that we talked about earlier from Goldfinger. This is from the live album, Foot in Mouth. It's called Going Home.
Yeah.